With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The following is a BasketballNews.com production. Welcome to the Alex Kennedy Podcast. This is episode number five. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, leave us a rating and review if you have a second. It really helps us out. It's the best way to show your support for this podcast and to help us grow. Today, I'm joined by best-selling author Jeff Perlman, who has written nine fantastic books. His new release, Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty is available now. You can find a link in the description of this episode, so be sure to check that out. And you can follow Jeff on Twitter, at Jeff Perlman. Jeff, thanks for joining me. How are you? I am uh, I'm good. I'm tired, but I'm, uh, as, you, as you notice, I'm wearing my Tampa Bay Buccaneers Tom Brady shirt, so uh, I feel very throwback-y today. I love it. I've discussed that on this podcast. I'm a Buccaneers fan. It's been a rough uh, life. You know, we have the one Super Bowl, but, you know, things are tri- finally looking up and, and right right in time when, you know, things finally start looking up and then now COVID's here and we start having positive tests in the NFL. So, yeah, it's been it's been tough, but it is what it is. Uh, I have to ask you, how tough is it during COVID, during a pandemic, putting out a book and then doing press for it and all that? How different is that process? You know, the main thing is, is... um I always think when when a book comes out, it's sort of like a celebration of this achievement. And you worked hard for two years or three years or whatever it is. And it's really exciting to go different places and maybe do book events or go to a studio and all that stuff. And it's kind of sad. I mean, it's like the 10 millionth worst thing to happen in COVID, obviously. (laughs) But it feels a little bit, it's a tiny bit anticlimactic. Like everything is done on Zoom like this and you don't get to talk to people face to face and you don't get the excitement of going to your hometown bookstore and having your parents there and all that stuff. Like, so that's kind of a bummer. But I do think people are reading and people seem to be ordering books. So that's ultimately a good thing. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. I feel like people have more time on their hands. I, I, I talked to someone on this podcast who had just put out a book at the start of quarantine. And I was thinking it can either be really good because you have so much time on your hands uh, or it can be really bad for a book. But I feel like, yeah, people are reading more. Have you kind of gotten that feedback from people? Um, yeah, I mean... There's definitely a lot of reading. The book industry is doing well. Books are doing well. Books are selling well. I think this book will probably be my biggest first week seller I've ever had out of nine books. Um, Congratulations. No, thank you. I think it will be. Who the hell knows? But um, it seems like it's on that track. But the the weird thing is, is like bookstores were already kind of fading. And now nobody's going to bookstores because no one's really going into stores, not like they used to. So it's definitely an adjustment when you think about who you're gearing toward and Who's selling your books? Um, it used to be all right, so it's seventy percent online now and thirty percent uh, brick and mortar. I feel like now it's ninety nine percent online. For sure, yeah, that's a good point. I- I'm a huge fan of your books. You know, I, I love reading them. Uh, we talked about that before. I love Showtime. I love Boys Will Be Boys. How did the reporting and interview process for this book compare to the other, you know, team focused books that you've written, like Showtime and Boys Will Be Boys that I mentioned? It was harder. This is the hardest book I've ever written. Um, number one is because 
you're dealing with, this is the most modern athletes I've ever dealt with. And as the years move, athletes just get a little more difficult because they've been, it sounds old manish, but I don't really mean it that way. Like athletes now are much more coddled than they were 10 years ago. And athletes 10 years ago were much less coddled than they were 10 years before. You know, as the money increases and the advertising dollars increase and everything increases, these guys are treated more like products, less like athletes. So um, they all become their own entities and, you know, brands. And it's just, it makes them more difficult. And the teams, I mean, to be very blunt and honest about it, the Lakers, when I wrote my book Showtime seven or eight years ago, were a dream. And this time, PR-wise, they're kind of a pain in the ass. Like they just, there's not the incentive to help or they didn't want to help as much. There's a lot of unreturned phone calls, a lot, blah, blah, blah. It's a, and that's a that's a similar experience, I think, to a lot of people who have who've covered the NBA for a long time. I found that these days it's just a lot harder. It's a lot more work. And I'm, I'm not trying to whine because it's a great job. But it just they make you go through a lot more hoops to get people. And a lot of times you have to go through agents now and then a publicist and then a handler and then maybe the Adidas rep. Oh no, it's a Nike rep. And no, actually the guy who handles is the guy who's doing his deal for his soda commercial. You know, like mm-hmm. just a lot more people to go through. I guess part of that is the explosion of the NBA in culture, but it's just different. Yeah. You're describing my life for the last few months while we tried to uh, sign players for basketballnews.com. It's been, you know, going through PR people and then agents and then, yeah, it's been, it's been a lot. And I, I totally agree. I feel like part of it too, is as these guys start, you know, becoming famous younger, like you have a Zion Williamson or guys with AAU culture and mixtapes that are blowing up when they're in high school. I think that's part of it too, where a lot of these guys are used to being told they're the man from age 14, 15 on. So, you know, they, they aren't entering the spotlight at 22, 23 years old. You know, these guys are uh, getting famous younger and younger too. And, and they're starting to get, they start getting coddled younger and younger too. I think that's also part of it. I mean, yeah, and I feel like the teams get used to treating people a certain way. So, um, perfect example, former Laker Mark Madsen, when I was working on this book, was an assistant coach with the Lakers. He's one of the nicest human beings on the planet. He's just a truly decent and nice guy. And I called the Lakers and tried arranging a time where I could come up and talk to Mark Madsen. And there was a lot of, like, again, unreturned phone calls, unreturned emails. And ultimately, I got an interview with Mark Madsen. I show up to the Lakers practice facility. I'll get him after practice. Well, after practice comes and Mark Madsen comes out and he, he couldn't be any better. He's just great. And he has nowhere to go. They don't have a road trip tomorrow and they don't have a game that night. We're just sitting, talking, talking, talking. He's awesome. And I would say about 10 to 12 minutes into the interview, one of the Lakers PR people comes up and kind of gives me the, okay, end it now mm-hmm. across the throat. And it's like, why? Like, Why? He's not going anywhere. He's Mark Madsen. He's not LeBron James. He's happy to be talking. This is all great. He could talk for an hour and a half. If I had just tracked down his home number, which I could have done, or his cell number, I probably could have called him and gotten all the time I wanted. But I decided to do the right thing and go through the team. Um, And it's almost like out of habit. They need to be like, no, we need to cut it off now. No, that's it. That's it. And um, it might be because I'm having a pissy day today. But it just, (laughs) right now, I'm just, I found it so annoying. and. I guess I'm an old guy in a newer world. Like I, I feel like teams should make people more accessible. I feel like if you want to talk to Mark Madsen and he's happy talking, let him talk for 45 minutes. I feel like media relations means you're actually supposed to help the media, not stand in their way. And I just think as great as the NBA is, and it's freaking great. I feel like the teams themselves and the media relations departments suck these days. 
Yeah, and it make, it really makes you appreciate the teams that do a really good job. Like there's some teams where they make their guys super available and they'll help you and, you know, they'll even help set up phone interviews if the guy if you want more time with the guy. So yeah, I, I totally agree. There's some organizations that are great and then some that are very frustrating. So I totally understand what you're saying there. Um which interviews ended up being your favorite and the most helpful? Um, well, I got Phil Jackson for about eight hours in Montana and Despite the rant I just went on, Jeannie Buss is probably my favorite owner in pro sports. And I reached out to her and said I was having trouble reaching Phil. And she put me in touch with him, and I ended up getting eight hours with Phil Jackson in Montana. Wow. It's great. And it was really cool because we were just driving around Montana for most of it, um, chatting. And it was like, I, I would say it was like I won the, uh, you know, some hedge fund contest for, you know, who wants to bid the highest bid? You win a day in Montana with Phil Jackson. I feel like <laughs> I actually won that contest. And he was really great and really insightful. Um, I had great talks with Mike Penberthy, who was with the Lakers not that long and is now the Pelicans' uh, shooting coach. He's really smart and really insightful. Uh, Rick Fox was fantastic. I met him in a Starbucks in L.A., and we just talked for hours, and he's one of my favorites. Um, J.R. Ryder, shockingly, was awesome and great. I actually knocked on his door randomly because I didn't have a phone number, and he was not happy to see me, but then we talked for a long time. And Shaq. I mean, I got Shaq at Turner Studios, and he was great. Kurt Rambis was great. I went sunbathing with Kurt Rambis, of all things. I mean, <laughs> think about these folks is they take you weird places and odd circumstances. That's part of the fun of it. That's awesome. Uh, I've heard some authors say when you start writing a book, you have an idea of what it's going to become, and then the actual book is sometimes much different than you envisioned. How did this? How did the actual final product differ from the original book that was in your head? Well, they should never. I, I've never had a book uh, wind up like I thought it would wind up or like I envisioned it because standing between a book proposal and a, and a finished product are presumably hundreds of interviews and thousands of pages of clips. And so it's never the same. Like it never comes out. Like I think this book, the one thing I found interesting, I was very adamant that this was not a Shaq and Kobe book. This is not a Shaq and Kobe book. This is about the 96 to 04 Lakers, everything they've gone through. I want to make it a Rick Fox book and a Robert Ory book and a Nick Van Axel book. I want it to be that. Yet, you could not get away from the gravitational pull that was Shaq and Kobe. Like, just couldn't. It was. It always came back to it. Whoever you were talking to always came back to them, to the relationship, for good or for bad. You're talking to Rick Fox about Canada, and all of a sudden you're talking about his relationship with Kobe. You're talking to Nick Van Exel about growing up in Wisconsin. All of a sudden you're talking about Shaq's arrival. It just They were such a huge part of this thing and kind of the two parts of the engine that really got it revved. You just couldn't escape them which I didn't expect to the degree uh, I encountered it, which is fine. It worked out okay. That's really interesting. I, th I think some of the, my favorite parts were, you know, you talking about the teammates and some of the lesser known guys. Uh, I, I think you do such a great job of that in all of your books of finding really new, interesting anecdotes uh, and, and getting stuff out of, you know, everyone in the roster top to bottom. Um, so, you know, for example, one thing that you wrote for us at basketballnews.com too, and I know you, you know, you've mentioned this elsewhere, but Shaq being the best star teammate ever and talking about, you know, him setting up dates for Mark Madsen with Mormon girls and, you know, offering to pay for people's funeral and things like that. Um, can we talk, talk about what you kind of learned from uh, different teammates of Shaq's over the years and what kind of separates him as a teammate? I mean, I think part of it is he's really sensitive. Um, he's really sensitive. He's sensitive to people's needs. He's sensitive to um, their feelings. He wants you to like him. It means something to him. Like he, you know, Kobe, this is not a dig at Kobe at all because it doesn't mean he's a bad, he didn't care if you liked him. Like he really didn't care. He did not care 
if his teammates were like, ah, oh, Kobe's the best guy in the world, or Kobe didn't matter to him, it was insignificant. For Shaq, it was painfully significant. Um, he wanted people to like him. And so he really went out of his way to sort of pay attention to people's feelings and be sensitive to people's feelings. I mean, I talked about in that piece I reviewed, Mike Pemberthy shows up and the only suit he has, he bought off the rack at Banana Republic and he makes the Lakers in, in 2000. And Shaq says to him, hey, do you, do you own any suits? He's like, nah. He's like, all right, come, come back tomorrow. And Shaq has his personal tailor there who makes uh, six suits for Mike Pemberthy and, and Shaq pays for it all. Um, you know, when, uh, when Joe Crispin out of Penn State makes the team, as the last man on the roster, a year later, Shaq insists he wants to fly his family in for his first game from Pennsylvania. Hmm. And he's like, no, no, I can't. Shaq, I can't have you do it. No, I want to do it. Shaq, I can't have you do it. They kind of drop it. A couple of days back, Shaq is like, listen, give me the information because I'm flying your family in. Not only did he fly him in, he flew him in first class. He just like, the level of kindness, decency, empathy, understanding. I've never written about, the only teammate who even comes close is Brett Favre when he was at the Packers, as far as just crossing racial, uh, geographic, age lines. The only two guys I've ever seen like that are Favre and Shaq. That's interesting. Yeah, and you kind of break this down well in the book. Uh, you you kind of talk about, you, you mentioned it a second ago, but the Shaq-Kobe dynamic, the biggest reason why they kind of had issues is because Shaq does need to be loved and admired. And like you said, Kobe doesn't really care about that and didn't show any interest in kind of having a relationship with Shaq, which really hurt him. What did you learn about that duo while you were writing this book? You mentioned, you know, every single interview came back to them. What did you learn about that duo? I mean, what I found really interesting is people will say, I mean, they had a lot of interesting role players. Like they had very unique role players. They had Rick Fox and they had Robert Ory and they had over the years, John Sally, J.R. Reed, Derek Harper, Ron Harper, Carmel, like all these guys. And the one thing that almost like uh, people overlook is a lot of those guys were brought in in a way strategically to deal with that relationship and really specifically to deal with Kobe and try to get Kobe to sort of be a part of things and to get Kobe to understand what it is to be a member of a team, not just an individual. And J.R. Reed, former North, when I was a kid, North Carolina stud, came in uh, on the Glenn Rice trade. And he said one day, uh, Jerry West came up to him and said, you know, I really like the way you deal with players. Can you sort of help maybe Kobe learn how to be a better teammate? Jerry's like, yeah, absolutely. I can do that. So, you know, they start traveling. Hey, Kobe, why don't you come in the back of the plane? We're all playing cards. No, nah, I'm good, man. Hey, Kobe, we're all going out to eat. You like Italian food? Let's go get Italian food. No, nah, I'm okay. I'm not hungry. Hey, Kobe, you want to go see that new, uh, that new movie? It's out. It's supposed to be great. No, nah, I think I'll pass. And he finally went back to Jerry West and said, you know, there's, there's nothing I can do. And there's one moment when Shaq takes most of the team on the road to a really fancy seafood restaurant on him. They ask Kobe, does he want to come? Nah, I'm good. And, uh, and about a half hour later, he shows up in the restaurant, gets a table for one, and is sitting there reading a book. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. So I just think, you know, I feel like we like our, we like our duos to be buddy-buddy. You know, like we do. We like our duos to be buddy-buddy. And, and this one couldn't be buddy-buddy because they were just so different. Like it wasn't made to be buddy-buddy. But they were effective on the court, and that's really what mattered. Well, and you open the book with a fantastic story about Kobe punching Samaki Walker. And it says a lot about Kobe and how he was carrying himself at that time. You know, he was uncomfortable in his own skin. He was trying to seem tough, uh, which you kind of allude to. Do you think growing up in Italy and never quite fitting in is kind of what caused Kobe to act like that and not care about 
what anyone thinks of him or having those relationships later on? I think there's a long history of kids who are brought up to be stars, whether it's actors, whether it's musicians, whether it's athletes, where something tends to be missing in their development. You know, um, I, I, I just I just think there's a there's a long list of child stars who missed something, either because they were homeschooled, they never went to the prom, they never went on a date, they never smoked a cigarette, they never smoked a joint, they never, whatever. Like, there are things that some people miss. You know, Kobe was brought up in Italy, only African-American to get around, moves to the leafy suburbs of Philly, Lower Marion, one of the few African-Americans around. His dad is famous, he's a star in Italy. Kobe is a prodigy. Kobe has a shoe deal at 17. Kobe's taking Brandy to the senior prom. Um... He has a press conference at his high school to announce where, that he's going to the NBA. Boys to Men is, is there. The members of Boys to Men are at the press conference. Like he never had, you're supposed to get a flat tire and not know what to do with your car at age 17. You know what I mean? Like you're supposed to ask someone out and she says, I would never go out with you and you feel horrible. Like all those things you're supposed to have because they, they build something in you. And I just think when he showed up at the NBA to the NBA, 18, barely 18 years old, he didn't have those things. You know, he just didn't. And, and it's really hard to catch up when you don't. So I just think that he looked cool. He seemed cool. He played cool. He was a Laker. There's nothing cooler than that. He was making millions of dollars. But I just don't think inside of him he had what it looked like he had. Yeah. There was an agent I talked to for an article at Hoops Hype. Uh, I think it was about two years ago. And they kind of made the same point that they're talking with these guys and get to know them really well. And yeah, I mean, a lot of times they're just not quite there developmentally or they missed, you know, some different things because when they were 15 or 16 years old, people were viewing them as a meal ticket. They never faced rejection. They were the most popular person. And sometimes they're, you know, city. Uh, it's just, it's a different way of growing up. And I think it leads to some of these things that you're talking about. So yeah, that's a great point. Um, I have to ask this, you know, the, the book was already done when Kobe passed away and it chronicles Kobe when he was younger and somewhat difficult and immature. I think your prologue was great. And, you know, you and I talked actually shortly after the accident happened. Uh, I remember, you know, you were kind of concerned how people would think, you know, how people would look at the book because it doesn't necessarily, you know, it's not someone, it's not a celebrity book after a guy's passed away where you're just sharing only positive stories and looking back. It's a very honest view of who he was at that time before he became, uh, you know, the Kobe that was a champion later on and everything. People talk about celebrities differently after they've passed away. And that's something that you've kind of talked about. Did you change anything after Kobe passed away? And if you were writing the book now, after Kobe's death, would you do anything differently? That's a good question. Um, I did not change anything. I just added, uh, as you said, a, a three-page author's note at the beginning of the book, sort of just making the case that um, someone at 41 isn't who they were at 25, that if you're going to read this book, don't make it the final judgment on Kobe Bryant. It's just a period of his life. It's a growth period. Um, I wouldn't change anything. I just wouldn't because I, I just at the end of the day, for good or for bad, and there are flaws and there's a lot of arguments to be made all over the place. Like this is kind of what biography is. Biography is right is a retelling of history and trying to capture a time period and trying to do it truthfully and honestly. And you know, Eagle, Colorado, a really ugly period of his, of his life that I write about a decent amount. And I don't know, how do you write about that period and not write about it? And this book isn't supposed to be an ode to Kobe Bryant or an ode to the Lakers or a teardown of the Lakers. It's just supposed to be a pretty, as accurate and honest as, as possible, recapturing of a time period. So 
I mean, I understand. I always say to people, if you if you love Kobe Bryant, and to you, he was just a basketball player who you loved, and you were all about Kobe Bryant, number eight, number 24, don't feel like you have to read this book. You know, like there are things you're not going to love everything about him. You'll, you'll learn a lot about him. You're not going to love everything about him. And if you're just, there's nothing wrong with loving an athlete just because you love what he gave you as an athlete and the memories you had watching him shoot jumpers or dunking or whatever. Like, that's fine. So you don't have to. But it's not my job to sort of, you can't change history. And to rewrite it just because someone died young, um, wow, his death is tragic and awful and horrible. And I wish it never happened times a million. You can't just rewrite it. It's just not honest. I think Kobe would agree with that. You know, uh, whenever he was on my podcast and, you know, he's given some interviews uh, or he gave some interviews, you know, prior to passing away, obviously, and he would talk about some of these things. And I think he regrets how he kind of carried himself back then. So, I mean, I think even he would agree that, you know, he evolved, you know, he matured, he became a better person, a better teammate. Uh, You know, he's talked about kind of learning from that period. So I think even he would feel that way. Um, So yeah, I mean, I agree. I think you can't kind of leave certain things like that out. And it's all part of his journey, which is, I think, something that you kind of wrote uh, in that author's note about it lets you see what he was going through at that time and how he kind of became this final product toward the end of his career and, you know, who he was before he passed away. So you know, it was a tragedy and a tough situation as a writer as well, you know, trying to figure out what to include and what not to include. But, you know, as you said, the book was already done. And I think I think if you're a Kobe fan, you're not going to come away from this hating Kobe Bryant. I think it's really interesting details and stories from his time when he was a young, you know, more immature player. So I think you did a really good job with it. Um, I have to ask you, you know, what were some of the what were some of your favorite stories or favorite things that you learned while doing the interviews and reporting for this book? Well, my favorite guy to write about, there are actually three guys who are my favorites. It was, um, I love guys like this. I love Dennis Rodman's time with the Lakers, which is short. I love Cedric Ceballos because he nicknamed himself Chice, short for franchise. Is an, I'm the franchise player here, which is awesome and ridiculous. But my favorite, favorite, favorite was J.R. Ryder. I love J.R. Ryder, who was there in 2000, 2001. Um, Three things about J.R. Ryder that just bring me joy beyond belief. And I interviewed him and he was awesome. Is number one, he uh, he missed three days of practice because his car broke down. But they only lived 300 yards away from the practice facility, which I just think is awesome. <laughs> um, number two, he was late to a shoot around uh, because he overslept. So he asked the hotel front desk clerk, to write a note that he could give to Phil Jackson saying that the hotel forgot to give him a wake-up call. So J.R. Ryder walks into practice late and hands Phil Jackson a note from, like, Tim, the front desk clerk at the Hyatt, saying, Dear Coach Jackson, please excuse J.R. Ryder's lateness. We forgot to give him a wake-up call. <laughs> and then number three is he, uh, when they were in Toronto, they were leaving and they had to go through customs into the U.S., and the drug dog just started going crazy when J.R. Ryder walked by, like snarling at J.R. Ryder. And J.R. Ryder is pulled into custody and detained for a long time. And they found nothing on him. His tracksuit smelled like marijuana so thickly. I don't know if thickly is the right, last word. It's the right word. It sets a thick odor of marijuana that he was detained for a lengthy period of time because they were convinced he had it on him. <laughs> That's how much he liked marijuana, that he was just a walking smell of marijuana. And, uh, he was just great. God, I love characters like J.R. Ryder. They're really, they make a book, they bring joy, they spark joy. 
I went to see him. He wasn't happy to see me. And then he talked to me for two hours. It's probably my favorite guy from the book. That's awesome. Uh, you mentioned Phil Jackson, you know, you spent time with him. Uh, in the book, I think you do a great job of obviously painting Phil Jackson as this amazing coach. He won tons of championships, but he's also a manipulator, and which is so true. He was a great coach, but I don't think there's any question that he manipulated his players. Uh, can you share some examples of that or things that you learn about Phil from your reporting? I'll tell you something funny. I got an email today from Phil Jackson, just today, I swear to God. And he wrote, Jeff, what was the name of the baseball book you sent me a couple of years ago? Because I, I sent him a book after I interviewed him mm. and he called A False Spring by Pat Jordan. And I was trying to think if he was trying to send me some message like he didn't like the book and it's false or something. I couldn't, or if he just couldn't remember the name of the book. I was actually, that's how much I was, I was like, wait, what was, is he trying to say something? Or um, he was, I thought in hindsight, an even better coach than I kind of thought just as a, as a, as an observer from afar. Um, you know, he was really good at not interfering too much. Like under Dale Harris, um, Dale Harris has talked and talked and talked way too much. And players got really tired of listening to Dale Harris. It was too much. And they got bored and they tuned him out. And Nick Van Axel, Dale Harris marriage was terrible and just sucked. Then they bring Kurt Rambis in, interim coach, but possibly going to get the job full time. And he just babied Kobe Bryant. And that drove Shaq crazy. So in comes Phil Jackson and he's got his, you know, he's got his six rings and he has his Michael Jordan pedigree and he's got his two more rings as a player with the Knicks. And he has his serenity, serenity about him, first of all. And then he also knows that he has a locker room filled with veterans and savvy guys. And he doesn't need to be over, overburdened. He doesn't need to overbear it, to be overbearing, to overburden these guys, to, you know, intervene in every sort of conflict. Like he's, a really smart coach because he's not a coach who feels like he needs to be the babysitter. And as simple as that sounds, it's actually not as common as you would think. A lot of the bad coaches, I mean, around that time, Rick Pitino, NBA, John Calipari, NBA. The reason they were both crappy NBA coaches is because they were so heavy-handed. Mm. They just couldn't do it. Phil Jackson was not heavy-handed. People actually don't realize that he was not a uh, overbearing, in-your-face, this is what we're going to do. He just kind of kicked back. He knew he had Rick Fox. He knew he had Robert Ory. He knew he had all these great locker room guys. And he was just really smart about it all. No, for sure. Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. Uh, this is your second book about the Lakers. You also wrote Showtime, which you mentioned. And I love that book too. Uh, that book is being made into a TV show on HBO that's executive produced by Adam McKay. What was your reaction when you got that news? That had to be so exciting. Oh, man. I mean, when I was a kid and when I was a young sort of writer, I just wanted like to write for Sports Illustrated or be a sports writer or have a... So if you said to me, and I'm not saying like this is, I'm, I swear to God, like I'm not saying like what I do is anything special at all. But if you had said to me at a young age, you're going to have nine books. Oh, and by the way, HBO is going to make a series out of one of your books. <laughs> I mean, like that, come on now. Like that's ridiculous. Like that's not, you know what I mean? Like no way. That's just ridiculous. So it's all just gravy. You know, it's like, first of all, it's a great job anyway, being able to write about sports. And then you get to write books. And then you're home to take your kids to school and sort of, you know, go to all their events and be a part. And then HBO comes along and they want to, it's Adam McKay. And, you know, it's like John C. Riley is going to, I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And we went, my, they, they did the pilot pre COVID and they gave my wife, my kids and I little cameos, which is, it was one of the best days of my life. It was so just thrilling and like, truly thrilling. 
I hope everyone gets at least one day like that where you're just flying on top of the world and all the candy bars are free. And <laughs> it's your, you know, it's like you see your, your, I mean, it's just crazy. It's, it's, it's unbelievable. Honestly, it's one of the thrills and highlights of my life. That's awesome. That's cool that you guys got cameos too. Uh, how, I guess, how involved are you whenever a show or a show is being made based on your book? Obviously, you know, they're, they're using a lot of the information from the book, but you know, how involved are you in the actual process? Uh, you know, you mentioned being there. Um, I, I think we talked about this probably a year ago or, or close to it, but a ra- randomly like a casting director had reached out to me. Uh, they emailed me and they were, they were saying that they were trying to cast the actor that was going to play Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and they were having like no luck. They were going right. to pro-ams and random gyms and not finding anyone. And so they had, they asked me if I would ask like a bunch of players and I asked Francisco Elson and a number of other guys. And then Francisco ended up saying, you know, I had this old college teammate, Solomon Hughes. He, he might yeah. be able to do it. And I think he sent over like a current picture of him. So I remember I sent it to the guy and then sure enough, Solomon read for it and he got the part. And it was really cool for me because I was seeing kind of how it works behind the scenes and how a show gets cast. So I thought that was really fascinating. It was really, really cool. And then you and I kind of talked about it, but how, how involved have you been throughout the process and how cool has it been to kind of see behind the scenes what happens when shows are being made? All right. So I would say minimally involved, but um, not by any, like there's no slight or anything. Like I never, I never... Um, asked to be a writer on the show. I never, you know, was like, oh, I need this. I need that. Like, it's not my job. I feel like you write the book, you hand it over to them. You're on call when they need you. Like they brought me to the writer's room. Um, I've become really close friends with the writers of the series. They've asked me a ton of questions over the whatever year and a half that they've been working on it. Um, I put them in touch with people. They've been nothing. I mean, nothing but awesome and gracious and kind. But it's not my baby. You know, like I feel like you write the book and then you hand it over to people who are experts in a different field and they take off with it. And it's been great. I mean, I really can't say I can't say enough. It's great. And like you're like, oh, yeah, they're going to make a they're going to make a show out of your book and you're going to get paid for it. I didn't even think about the aspect of it. Yeah, that's crazy. That's amazing. I was thinking just how cool it is. But yeah. Oh, man, it's ridiculous. It's just um it's great. And also my kids think I'm cool. So, you know, <laughs> any of that I can buy in between the dad jokes and all that crap I'll take. So it's been, it's a highlight of my life. Truly one of the highlights of my life. That's very cool. Last question for you, because this is your second Laker book, you obviously experienced Laker nation. I know you've been doing a lot of interviews mm-hmm. recently and, uh, and people are very excited about the book. I feel like I've always told, told people this Laker fans are, I think the most passionate. There's a ton of them. Uh, every time we write a Laker article, it just blows up. There's so much attention. What's it been like now writing two books for, I guess, not just for Laker nation. It's for all basketball and sports fans, but you know, what's been your experience with Laker nation? So it's interesting. I'm an East coaster. Uh, I grew up, you know, Mets, Jets, Nets, Islanders. And, uh, you know, New York fans, New York fans are badass and New yeah. York fans don't take shit and New York fans complain a lot. And I'm just like them. You know, I was, I was brought up to yell, you suck at the pitcher when he walks off the mound. So that it's kind of how you're raised. And LA fans are so different, but I don't think they quite fit the cliche. People say like, there's a the cliche of, you know, Dodger fans showing up two innings into a game, which is probably true a little bit, but a lot of that is traffic. I find Laker fans to be very passionate. I'm not just saying this very knowledgeable not quite as intense as New York fans, as in that intensity where you see a vein bulging out of your neck kind of intense. Um, 
and really committed to the team. Like they're not fair weather. I don't find Laker fans fair weather fans. I don't find Clipper fans really fair weather fans. Um, and you know, the thing that's been amazing, I'll tell you the thing that has dazzled me or not dazzled me, but surprised me. I was really ready for a lot of people to give me a lot of crap about this book and how dare you write about Kobe and blah, 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 blah. And the thing I've heard over and over again is I'm not just saying this is like, we're not, this isn't, we knew this about Kobe. Like this, we knew this about Kobe. There's a side of him. Right. And it's fair to write about it. Like as long as you're fair about it and you're fair in the way you wrote it, that's, it's fair game. What are you, are you not supposed to write about? So I, that's been really refreshing. And I think the, um, the love affair with Kobe, first and foremost, I think was about his doggedness, his work ethic, his commitment, um, showing up at 5 a.m., being the last guy out of the gym. And none of, nothing you could read about him anywhere takes away from that. So I just think like overall what they love about Kobe is what he brought to it every day more than, wow, that Colorado, that never happened or blah, 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 never. Like, it's not about that, you know? Yeah, I think that I think that's a important thing to note. It's different whenever, you know, there's this person that uh, is a huge celebrity and people love him for a certain reason. Then you kind of flip it and say, no, here's what they're really like after they've passed away. And then there's a situation like this where everyone kind of knew these things about Kobe and aren't surprised when they read it. You're just kind of filling in the gaps and sharing some of those stories and providing more details. So I know you've, I know you dealt with that in the past with like Walter Payton, for example, with sweetness, you've talked about how people in Chicago were upset and how certain people were bashing before even reading the book, which was kind of crazy. So, I mean, how this is different from that, I'm guessing based on what you're saying, it's been much different. Uh, Usually, usually it hasn't been any of that. And I was ready for that. I was prepared for that. I'd been through it. I felt like I entered this situation with in much more of a defensive posture and it just hasn't been that way at all. It's been the exact, it's been great. It really has. It's been great. I have no complaints at all. It's been, people have been awesome. That's great. That's good to hear. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for doing this, man. I really appreciate you taking time. Uh, again, the book was fantastic. I love all your stuff. So I really, uh, I appreciate you sending it to me first of all. And, uh, I'm looking forward to the show to, or the, uh, the Showtime show on HBO. When I say that, it sounds like I'm saying Showtime, the channel and getting it wrong, but it's the Showtime show on HBO. I think they're changing the name. It was actually the working title was Showtime and the book was Showtime, but I feel like because it's Showtime and it's not on Showtime, they might change the name of Showtime. Yeah, it is kind of confusing. Uh, so, But I, I can't wait for the show and uh, I can't wait for your next book. Oh, I have to ask that. As a, as a fan of your stuff, I, I hate to, you know, you just finished the book and now I'm asking you about another one, but do you have any idea what your next book is going to be about? I'm hard into it. I'm doing a, uh, it's not your sport of choice, but I'm doing a Bo Jackson biography. Mm, okay, that's awesome. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm excited. So. Well, everyone... Yeah. Make sure you check out Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the crazy years of the Lakers dynasty. It is a fantastic book. We'll have a link in the description. Make sure you guys follow Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Perlman. And if you want to hear more episodes of this podcast, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere podcasts are found. And until next time, thanks for listening. Today's episode is sponsored by Greensupply.com. With everything going on in the world, it's more important than ever to stay safe. At Greensupply.com, you can purchase masks, hand sanitizer, and other important health and wellness products, which are all in stock with same-day shipping. Best of all, listeners get 10% off their order when you use the promo code ALEX at checkout. That's A-L-E-X for 10% off your order. They have KN95 masks, cloth masks, hand sanitizer, and other supplies like forehead thermometers and UV boxes. Visit Greensupply.com today. That's greensupply.com.